the idea that we have of God as some being, uh, as something, in essence, as a noun uh, that we relate to, it's me and God or the creation and the creator, is really not the way mystical Kabbalah looks at the divine. It relates to God in terms of what they call Ein Sof, which uh, can be translated as boundlessness, which has no characteristic and no description, and it's constantly present, and it's everywhere at all times, and it's not something. So um, the closest that we can come to it is describing it as a process, and uh, this is the reason for the idea God is a verb. Indeed, God identifies himself as a verb in, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, doesn't he? He says, the, the I am who I am. I, I am who he says, uh, which could be translated, I am who I am or what I am, or, or it could also be translated in the future, I will be what I will be. But in essence, it's really, it is the ultimate, and that's the only place in the Torah uh, where that we have the name of God as that. Uh, the other point that I think I'm making uh, fairly often is the word God, obviously, only appears in an English translation of the Torah. The actual Torah itself has dozens of names to represent the divine force, and each of the names has a different quality. And in Kabbalah, they call it a partsuf or partsufim. It has different faces. And uh, so uh, when that gets translated simply into God or Lord in the English translation, it's very confusing because we don't know what it represents. Uh, each time it shows up in the Torah, it, it, there's actually a feeling of a characteristic that's coming through, which could be kindness, but it also could be jealousy. It could be uh, loving, or it could be uh, something that uh, is a little more uh, what we would consider to be negative. So there's a lot of confusion around what is what are the characteristics of the divine. And in the end, Ainsof says everything, everything that happens, everything that can be. So um, that is a very different way of of representing what we think God is about. We think that there's good and evil. God is the good and then there's the evil. Um, but Kabbalah says it's all gathered under one umbrella. So this universalism that characterizes Kabbalah would mean that Kabbalah is not just a practice for Jews. Yes, uh, yeah, literally it, it actually has been taken on. In the in medieval times it was taken on by Christian theologians and there's a very clear definitive Christian Kabbalah that has Jesus as part of the tree of life. Um, but on a much more mystical level, Kabbalah really is a, the mystical aspect of Judaism and um, any mystical aspect of any tradition could uh, fit under this umbrella of the of the Kabbalah. Kabbalah really means the the literal meaning of of Kabbalah means to receive, and the question arises: receive what from whom? And from a mystical perspective, it means doing whatever it takes to build this container uh, that I call David, or sometimes Daviding, because I'm also a verb. Um, this container to be able to receive the mystical input from the universe. That's what Kabbalah is about. So anybody who's got the container to receive the, the mystical teachings is, uh, in essence, a Kabbalist. I've heard it said, implied of Kabbalah by uh, uh, an American rabbi, indeed the rabbi who ordained you as a rabbi, mm -hmm. who said that any Jewish contemplative practice has to be authentically Jewish. Now, I suppose I should ask him what he meant by that. What do you think he meant by that? 
Well, that's a really good question because the very same rabbi, when I asked him what does it mean to be a rabbi, he, he used that very language. You have to feel authentic. You have to feel like you're authentically doing what you're doing. So his idea of authenticity means something in the, the language he would use, something in the kishkas, something in the gut that makes you feel like you're doing something right and it's not an ego trip that you're on. Um, and a large part of quasi-mysticism is an ego trip. There are a lot of people that get themselves caught up with a feeling that they're doing something that's going to make them greater, um, not in the positive sense, but greater, stronger, uh, and magical, and, and, and cause things to happen, and black magic, white magic. There's a lot of that associated with Kabbalah. And uh, I think what he is suggesting here is there's a... You know, in mystics, there's, it starts getting difficult to use words, but there's this sense that what you're doing is on exactly on the right track, exactly you, you feel that you're doing that will, that force. Uh, we would normally say the will of God. It's not the will of David. It's you're just doing whatever it is you're doing uh, some, as a vehicle uh, that is an expression of the divine. The thing that interests me about Kabbalah as a, a Jewish practice, an offshoot of Judaism, is that elsewhere in Judaism, God has this intense particularity. He's the God of history. He chooses the children of Abraham specifically as his people. How do you square that biblical God, the God of Torah and history, with the universal God of Kabbalah? Well, it fits fine if you understand that the universal God of Kabbalah is all-inclusive. Uh, when we say Echad in the Shema, we say that that which is transcendent and that which is imminent is all one. It's all part of the oneness. So that historical Judaism uh, and sometimes academic Judaism and sometimes rabbinic Judaism has chosen to characterize God in terms that nurture it as, an, as a part of the whole is perfectly fine. It works fine as long as we understand that there's something bigger that the Kabbalah is talking about that really cannot be characterized. Uh, the Kabbalah very explicitly says, um, don't call Ainsof um, by any name. Don't give it, it doesn't say don't give it a gender, but I do, because there is no gender for it. And it says very explicitly, explicitly don't call it the creator. Now, that's very unusual because in traditional Judaism, of course, God is the creator, uh, or yud heh vav is the creator. But um, the Kabbalah and the Zohar, I'm now referring to, says we really shouldn't refer to it as creator because um, that would suggest um, that there is some force that created it, and, and that would not be correct. So we shouldn't characterize it by these things. So this is the dynamic, and it becomes paradoxical, as most of these mystical teachings are. That it's paradoxical to understand the boundlessness as non-dual. It's one. It's completely one. And yet all of Judaism is built upon a dualistic relationship between creation and creator. From the that perspective, if we limit ourselves to that perspective, we're going to have arguments over who's God and what God and our God is right and your God is wrong. We're going to have those kinds of arguments. When we move into this idea of boundlessness, it just is so big, it will hold all of that and say, in essence, yes, <laughs> okay. It doesn't. There's no argument. It doesn't want to argue over the details that uh, we've uh, contrived in our minds. 
Do you find arguments, though? Did you get arguments, or historically have there been arguments between Kabbalah and more Torah-centered orthodox strains of Judaism? And if, if you put this into a Christian perspective, the kind of thing that you're talking about would be seen by more conservative areas of the church as being heretical. Yeah, every tradition, the, the mainstream Islam is argues with its Sufi contingent, and as you point out, the, there's arguments with mystical uh, Christianity from the more fundamental uh, tradition, and certainly there have been big arguments in Judaism, uh, the, the main one being uh, when the Hasidism started to get itself uh, grounded, there was a part of mainstream Judaism that had big arguments with Hasidism as, no, this is not Jewish. It's not, you're not supposed to be uh, dancing and tumbling and uh, singing and uh, and doing these things. You're supposed to be sitting and studying Torah. Well, once again, those kinds of arguments have arisen in every tradition that uh, I've read about, particularly in the battle between the mystical and the and usually the authoritative or the traditional because the mystical is is it recognizes the universality of itself. Uh, my experience with mystics in every tradition has um, has been that uh, we all are kind of experiencing the scent of the rose. Uh, we don't have to talk about it. We just have there's this mystical scent uh, out there. But um, when we get down to ideologies and beliefs, um, that by definition. Uh, when you have a belief, it means that there's something that doesn't fit into that belief, which is the basis for most argument um, between traditions and, and in, intra-traditions uh, where uh, inside uh, people are saying, this is the way to do it. No, this is the way to do it. And it's, it's, um, it's part of the phenomenon of the human process to uh, draw lines and then decide what's inside and what's outside. Kabbalah itself seems to have uh, different traditions associated with it. My first exposure to it was as something that involves very close study of the Torah um, and, and other sacred texts, studying the numerical values of the letters, studying the shapes of the letters. Yours, I understand, is a more um, uh, less scientific, if you like, approach. Right. What kind of Kabbalah do you practice and what sort of relation does it have to the more um, text-centered practice? Well, uh, what you describe is the traditional approach to Kabbalah where, and you'll see it um, in the text, where uh, you really need a teacher to work with to help you understand how the shapes of the letters, how the letters interact with one another, uh, the gematrias, the numbers of the letters, and all of that. That requires a, a, a human teacher to work with. And so the transmission that takes place in Kabbalah goes from teacher to student, and uh, there were qualifications of what you had to know to be a student, and, uh, and there were formulas that you had to be a certain age, you had to be married, you had to know a certain amount before you could learn these things. So this is traditional Kabbalah. Uh, along comes somebody in the 13th century named Abraham Abu Lafia, who represents a different kind of Kabbalah, which is far more contemplative. And Abu Lafia's practice wasn't uh, something that he learned from a teacher. He would sit down and he would gaze at letters and uh, um, transmute them. He would turn them around and, and transpose them. And he would, he would just sit there in a quiet room. He describes it as a dark, quiet place where he would gaze at these letters. And as they turned around in his mind, uh, new things, new words would form up, new phrases would form up. And he had an ecstatic experience doing this. So he's known as the father of ecstatic Kabbalah. And for, for him... 
The transmission was coming directly from the source of being. He was uh, connecting with that. So rather than seeking out teachers and sitting with text and learning encyclopedic uh, uh, replications of, uh, of different teachings, he would just sit quietly doing his practice and be receiving what he felt was the ultimate absolute truth. And uh, if, if there's a school that I'm somehow associated with, it would be his school. It would be that idea that quieting the mind, in my case, I encourage people to learn how to meditate and also to be willing to sit for extended periods of time uh, in, in quiet and in reflection and, in essence, in communion with the divine. That, for me, is the f- foundation of the kind of Kabbalah that I work with. So where's the discipline? What makes it particular and what differentiates it from something like Buddhist practice? Well, uh, on the face, it it might look like a Buddhist practice. If uh, you, you see a group of people on retreat with me, they're usually sitting quietly, uh, and maybe with their eyes closed, maybe open, and they look very much like the the group next door, who's in a in a Buddhist retreat, and they're sitting quietly, and uh, their eyes may be open or closed. So, from the outside, it may look like they're identical. However, when you go inside. Uh, the people that are come to our retreats are usually working with um, material uh, that would be Torah, that would be uh, in the prayer service, for example. They might be contemplating certain phrases. They might be working with the Parsha, uh, which is the Torah portion for the week, trying to understand one particular nuance of that. So right off the bat, we have um, a different experience because uh, whereas one is trying to understand what the Buddha meant by what the teaching is that's being given over, we're working with, uh, with the Torah. That's one piece of it. Then there are other pieces where the actual uh, process and practice that we're engaged in of opening up to the moment, of uh, recognizing how the mind works, and of somehow being able to release uh, our neurotic thinking processes and be with what is, uh, it begins to merge with other traditions, not just Buddhist, but Hindu and, and uh, Sufi and, and even Christian mysticism. All the traditions um, in the meditative process actually come to this fundamental point of getting beyond the limitations of the mind and learning how to simply be with what is happening right now because that's our direct connection with what in Judaism we would call the divine. Um, In Buddhism, they would call it the unconditioned. And um, in the end, East and West come together in the deepest meditative practices where there's an appreciation of the what I'm now calling the paradox between duality and non-duality, or that which is the oneness of that is connects us all, the interconnectedness of all beings, which is actually a Buddhist uh, concept, and um, uh, the multiplicity, which is where Judaism has put most of its focus on relationship between creator, creation, or between man and man. It has that relational question. So my process is to utilize the teachings, the mystical teachings of many traditions, bring it into Judaism and enhance it a little bit more than it it hasn't been a major part of the mainstream in Judaism, but it very uh, definitely nurtures all of the Jewish training. So um, in the end, 
I don't want to so much make differentiations between the different practices. I want to show where they come together and where we uh, can nurture one another and, and cross-fertilize with each other so that we can um, get to the ultimate truth of what's going on out there. David, does all this have a political application? And I ask this because I know you used to be a political consultant in Washington. That's right. And what does Kabbalah have to offer those Jews who experience Judaism as being very intimately bound up with political concerns and political ethics, particularly as far as support for the state of Israel is concerned? Is, is it a retreat from that kind of Judaism, or, or, or is there a connection there? I think uh, the, the outcome of the kind of practice that I engage in is um, understanding how our minds unfold, how we develop ideas, how we develop our principles and how we have belief systems and um, where our attitudes come from. And all, all of it's, you know, in some ways it's deeply spiritual and psychological simultaneously. And when we begin to appreciate the depths of the, of the conditioning that each and every one of us um, has deep within us and that drives our mind and drives our activities, we begin, it begins to inform um, our experience, and in, whether it's politics or whether it's just everyday engagement with the world, um, I think it's very important for us to understand when we encounter something that we like or we don't like and we, or we want to change or we want to fix, when we encounter those kinds of things, and in politics there's encountering clearly a lot of different opinions and finding ways to work with different points of view and bringing about a certain kind of comp a willingness to compromise. That comes from uh, maturity, a political maturity, where you understand that you can't always have it your way. So whether it's the state of Israel or, or whether it has to do with politics in the Jewish world, it has to be informed by this uh, knowledge of how things work inside each and every one of us, which then gives us the opportunity to uh, make progress that's well-informed. So the practice that I'm involved in is not only uh, something that deepens one's personal relationship with whatever tradition it is they're, they're living with and working with, it also uh, applies to everyday features of getting along with your family, getting along with your, you know, uh, your neighbors, and, and on the other level, working in politics and getting along with other nations and other ideas.